So a college student named George needed to get this two-hour course into his schedule in order to fill it out, okay? And the only course that seemed to fit was one that was called Wildlife Zoology. He had absolutely no interest in wildlife zoology. Um, And he had heard that it was a difficult course and that the professor was a little, you know, different. But he needed the course, so he signed up for it. And after about a week or so, they had read one chapter in the book, and the professor handed out an exam. And on the paper, uh, it was divided into these little squares with pictures of birds' legs in each of the squares. And they were told that they needed to identify the type of bird based upon those pictures of their legs. No feet, no bodies, just the legs. Well, George was absolutely floored. He's looking at this test, and as he looks at that, he gets angrier and angrier. And finally, he gets up from his seat. He walks up to the front where the professor is sitting. He takes the test. He throws it on the professor's desk. He says, this is the stupidest test I've ever taken, and this is the dumbest course I've ever been in. Well, the professor looks up at him, and he says, young man, you just flunked the test. And then he looks at the test that the student brought up, and he notices there's no name on it. And so he says, by the way, young man, what's your name? And so George bends over. He pulls up his pant legs. He shows him his leg, and he says, you identify me. But you see, our identity is more than just our name, isn't it? In fact, it's a whole lot more than just our name. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, in the very opening part of it, wrote this very interesting comment. He said, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and what do you think the second part is? The knowledge of God, our our wisdom is in two parts. Knowledge of God and... What? Knowledge of ourselves gives this woman a star. Okay, raise your hand, take a bow. (laughs) Okay, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. But then he goes on, he says, as these are connected together by many times, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes the other or gives birth to the other. 
In other words, do we come to know God first and then come to know ourselves? Or do we come to know ourselves first and then come to know God? What Calvin is saying is you can't really tell which comes first. Interesting comment by John Calvin. So if I were to ask you, who are you? And you can't answer that by giving me your name or your occupation. What would you say? Who are you? Think about it. You can't use your name. You can't use your occupation. You can't use where you live, what organizations you belong to, whether you're single or married or divorced. Who are you? What? What is the essence, the core of your identity? Our scripture text this morning from 1 Peter shows how Peter actually addresses this issue. And he looks at the implications that there are for living out our lives based upon historic facts and the theological truth that comes from those facts. Since we have a right now to call God the one who created this whole universe. We call him our Father, as Jesus tells us to do when he teaches his disciples how to pray. Since we call him our Father, what does that mean in terms of how we then go about living out our lives? Does it make a difference? I hope it does. Unfortunately, particularly in the kind of work that I do, I don't see that happening as much as I would like. So, it begins, if you will, with not only recognizing who God is, but then also who we are. That's how we come to understand our true identity, if you will. There was a story that some of you may have heard before. It's supposedly based upon a true event, and it has a number of different permutations as true stories tend to develop as they're passed from one person to the next. But I thought it was quite a fascinating account of what happened when a seminary professor named Fred Craddock from Oklahoma was taking a vacation in Tennessee with his wife. And they were sitting in this little diner having a quiet breakfast, enjoying the quiet place, 
When they noticed this tall, distinguished-looking man with long white hair going from table to table and engaging people in conversation around the, the little restaurant. And Fred Craddock kind of leaned over to his wife and he whispered, I hope he doesn't come over here. Because he just wanted to be left alone and have a quiet breakfast with his wife. Well, guess what? The guy comes over, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? And, you know, he tells him his name. And we're, you know, where are you from? Oh, we're from Oklahoma. Oh, good to have you here. And uh, so what kind of work do you do? And Fred Craddock says, well, I'm a seminary professor. And the guy says, oh, seminary professor. Then you must teach preachers how to preach, right? Yeah, that's kind of what I do. And, well, have I got a story for you. And he pulls up a chair, and he sits down at the table. And he points out the window, and he says, you see that mountain over there? Well, at the base of that mountain, a long time ago, a little baby was born to an unwed mother. And when that baby got a little bit older, it seems that wherever he went in town, people would ask him, who's your daddy? And he was very sensitive about that question because, of course, he didn't know who his daddy was. And so he'd go in the grocery store and they'd ask him, hey, who's your daddy? And they'd go into the hardware store. At school, the other kids would tease him with that same question, who's your daddy? And uh, you know what? It even happened in church. But then one day, when he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to his church. And this boy used to get to church late and leave early so that he could avoid any kind of interaction with the other people there. But on that first Sunday, the, the new preacher said the benediction so quickly that the boy didn't have a chance to jump up and get out before the end. And so he kind of got stuck in the line waiting to go and greet the pastor. And when he got up to shake the pastor's hand, the pastor, of course not knowing anything about him, put his arm around and said, hey, nice to have you here. And who's your daddy? And of course when he said that, everybody went silent and they thought, uh-oh. You know, maybe now we're going to find out who his daddy really is. And uh, the pastor kind of sensed that there was something funny going on here. And he kind of figured it out. Perhaps the Holy Spirit gave him some uh, insight into this. And, and the pastor said, now, oh, wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. And he patted the boy on the shoulder and he said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Now go out there and claim it. Well, the boy smiled for the first time in a long time and he walked out that door a changed person. And so, after that, whenever anybody asked him, who's your daddy, 
He would just say, I'm a child of God. The distinguished gentleman got up from his table and he said to the seminary professor and his wife, Now, isn't that a great story? And the professor responded that, yeah, it really was. And as the man turned to leave, he said, you know, if that preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. And he walked away. Well, the seminary professor and his wife were just stunned. And he called one of the waitresses over and he said, who is that guy? And the waitress said, oh, everybody around here knows him. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of Tennessee. He got it. He finally got it. He saw the truth, and the truth set him free. Set him free to become who he became, the governor of Tennessee. And I wonder how many of us don't get it. You know, we, we hear the truth, we, we understand it in our heads, but do we really get it? Do we really get it in our heart? Because that's what our self-image needs to be based on. That we are children of the King. the king of the universe. And we know that we are loved because the triune God came to us in what we call the second person. God the Son became a man named Jesus and died so that we might live. Live fully. As Peter puts it in verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so we have God as our Father, And we are then able to have fellowship with him. And all of the resources of God are then placed at our disposal to accomplish his will. Do you believe that? All of the resources of God are placed at our disposal for the accomplishment of his will. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, We are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared beforehand in advance that we should do. These are works that God has prepared, and because He prepared them in advance, of course He's going to give us the resources that are necessary to do it. Again, Paul talks about the fact that we are adopted sons in Romans 8, 15. I'll read it. Romans 8, 15 through 17. Actually, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We see later in Peter's epistle in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's pretty astounding when you really think about that. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. Do you think of yourself as a royal priest? Is that part of your identity? A holy nation. People belonging to God. You know, I'm proud to be an American. I'm sure most of you are. Probably all of you are. But you know what? I'm going to tell you something. I'm even prouder to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. A citizen of the kingdom of God. There's a lot written in my field of study, which is psychology and mental health. There's a lot written about self-esteem Self-esteem. There are a lot of people who write in this area that believe that most of our societal problems like crime and relational breakdowns and emotional difficulties, by and large, go back to this issue. People that have low self-esteem. And so... If that is true, then the solution must be to try to help everybody increase their self-esteem, how they look at themselves and value themselves. And so over the past 30, 40 years, there's been this whole movement uh, that's been inundating our society, the self-esteem movement. Actually, I think you know, sort of a, it kind of began with a book. I can remember when I was in college reading this book called "I'm Okay, You're Okay." Any of you remember that book? <clears throat> the idea behind it is that we're all okay. Okay, that was part of the idea. You know, that we're all okay. And so, 
from that kind of thing, you know, we have all this stuff that's infiltrated our schools where parents are told that, hey, I'm not parents, teachers are told, hey, you have to be really careful about, you know, not hurting people's feelings. And um, part of that involves, in some school systems, they're actually doing away with grades because, well, what if you get a lower grade than someone else? How are you going to feel about yourself? Right? We don't want anybody to feel bad. And so how can we give anybody a low grade? And then, of course, that's also, you know, if you've been involved in the sports programs, kids, youth sports and all that, you know, coaches are encouraged to get, oh, give everybody, give everybody a trophy. Don't just give the winners a trophy. Everybody's a winner. Everybody's okay. Everybody gets a trophy. Okay. Um, some some games they don't even keep score anymore because you know nobody wants to get a higher score than somebody else. It's really it's really kind of pathetic, I think. Um, but you know that's just me. You know, actually, they they I, I came across this survey that was done. Uh, they they took a survey of the self esteem of criminals in our criminal justice system. And they came to find that criminals have a higher level of self-esteem in general than the general population does. So what do you do with that one? They think more highly of themselves than the people in the general population. Hmm. Well, I think that a lot of psychologists who write in the field, in this particular field, don't really understand, or if they do understand it, they don't agree with the Christian notion of sin. Sin, you see, is a bad word. They don't understand sin. They don't agree with that concept. How can anybody say that, they, you know, that they're a sinner or that you're a sinner or anything like that? They don't like the idea of the Christian idea that we're all fallen. We have a fallen nature that were distorted and twisted. But, you know, I really don't understand it. I mean, how can anybody who's been a parent think that children are good? Basically good. I mean, you don't have to teach children to be bad, do you? No, you have to teach them to be good. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. You have to teach them to share. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's because of our fallen nature. I think it shows very clearly there. But like I say, these psychologists who write in that field, they, they, don't, they don't get that. They don't get the whole idea that not only does Christianity explain what we see in our human nature, but it also gives a solution. It's an astounding solution that God provides for us in Christ. I'm okay when God says I'm okay. I'm more than okay. We have the solution. But to get there, you have to recognize reality first. And that is that we don't start out that way. Now, I'm sure most of you here are familiar with the concept of denying yourself, right? I mean, that's a, that's a Christian concept. You don't see that in many other places. 
Jesus talked about that in Luke 9, verse 23, when he says, if anyone follows me, he must, what, deny himself, then take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Now, I think, unfortunately, that that notion is often misunderstood within the Christian community. I think oftentimes people think that means that we must repress, we must repress, we must put away, we must deny our aspirations and our dreams and our desires, and we must follow Jesus sort of like spiritual zombies. Well, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's far from that. And I think Paul clarifies that. The Apostle Paul clarifies that for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, when he writes, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, so that you can be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you get that? You see, it's our old, sinful, distorted, corrupted, self-centered self that Jesus is talking about when he says you have to deny that. You have to basically put that on a cross. You have to kill it, if you will, before you can follow him. It's the new self, the self that's created to be like God, the self that's meant to reflect God's character that's then free to follow Jesus. That's the true self. That's the one that was envisioned by God before the creation of the world, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You see, our goal is to become like Jesus, but not duplicates of Jesus. We're all unique people. If we're all supposed to be just like Jesus, exactly like Jesus, well, what's the point of creating all these various people? We're all meant to have a family resemblance. We're all part of the same family. We have that family resemblance, but we're not all the same. And so we're, we're supposed to deny our distorted, false self so that we can embrace who we really are, who we were meant to be. Not what our mother thought we should be, not what our father thought we should be. My mother thought I should be a banker. My father thought I should be a lawyer. Not what our teachers think we should be. Not what our pastor even thinks we should be. Not what our coach thinks we should be. 
but what God, what God thinks we should be. Who I am will then translate into what I do. Too often I see people trying to conform who they are with what they think other people expect. And they end up with miserable lives. They're like square pegs in round holes. They think somehow this is what Jesus meant when he said to deny themselves. But I don't agree. I don't think he wants us to deny or ignore who he created us to be, uniquely be. That's the part, as Paul says, we're supposed to embrace. We're supposed to put that on, that new self. So who are you? Who is this new, real self? And what tasks has God entrusted to you? Based on who you are. That's not a question that we just answer once and then that's it. Never come back to it. No, it's a question I think that we have to continually address as we grow and mature and evolve over time. But you see, people who place their hope in this world and who place their value in the things of this world, they just don't get it. They think their value, their self-worth, their identity, their self-esteem is based upon how they look, how intelligent they are, how many degrees they have, how many friends they have. How much status they've been able to achieve. How much power they wield. How good they are at sports. How young they are. How healthy they are. But all of those things are made possible by God. And they have nothing to do with our true value or who we really are. They're all perishable. And in that sense, they're empty. The only true solution to feelings of alienation and worthlessness 
come from knowing who we are in God. It's that knowledge. Not just head knowledge, but it's the experiential knowledge of dying to the old and putting on the new, what Peter and Paul and Jesus all refer to as being born again. It's that that enables us to have a sincere love, as Peter talks about here, that enables us to love one another deeply from the heart. But you know, just because we call God our Father doesn't mean that we can then be satisfied with living our lives like spoiled brats. Peter tells us that our Father will judge each person's work impartially. We need to be careful how we behave because what we do has, is a reflection on our Father, on his reputation. We need to keep a loose grip on this world. We don't want to get caught up in the things that our neighbors are all caught up in, that they think are important. Because then we, like them, will be too invested in our own lives, in our own comfort, in our own well-being. And we won't have any time or energy or resources left over to reach out into the lives of others. You see, this world is not our home, as that old spiritual says. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? There's a well-known quote by C.S. Lewis on this very idea of keeping a loose grip on this world. Uh, some of you may have heard it, but he, he writes, um, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily enamored by the things of this world. But we have been redeemed, Peter reminds us here, from the empty ways that we inherited from our forefathers, the empty ways of paganism, the empty ways of our non-Christian American neighbors and friends and family, We've been redeemed, not by gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. The lamb without blemish, without sin. 
You see, this was not plan B that God came up with when plan A didn't work. Again, Jesus was, this plan was created before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God had this in mind. Before Adam and Eve and the serpent, before Noah and the ark, before Abraham and the children of Israel, God had this all planned out. That he was going to come, that Jesus was going to come and rescue us from ourselves, really. And so Jesus becomes our standard. If we want to know more about God, we have to learn more about Jesus. If we want to know how does God want us to live, we need to look at how Jesus lived. And when we, when we respond to that truth, when we put off that old self and put on the new, when we look at the truth of Jesus, we become purified and holy in the eyes of God. It's amazing. Amazing love. And we're meant to love like he loves us. We're meant to love in supernatural ways because we've been given the Holy Spirit and thus we are enabled to do that. We're not just supposed to love like pagans love, which is loving those who love them back, loving those who can give them something in return. No, we're meant to love even our enemies, even our political enemies. Loving those on the other side of the aisle, as they say in Capitol Hill. It's easy to love people that are just like you, who think the way you do and see things the way you do, but we're called on to love people who see things diametrically different than us. Love them. Because you know what? Again, as Peter tells us here, all men are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You know, all those people that are out there, the rich, the famous, the powerful, they're all going to die. We, we see it all the time. These rich, powerful, famous people, they die. And then what? Where are they? What difference did all that make in the end? What matters, really, and the only thing that really matters is are we becoming the people that God wants us to be? That's really it. That's it. Are you becoming the person God wants you to be? Are we becoming creatures fit to live happily in heaven with God? Or are we becoming creatures fit only for hell, away from God? Are we becoming our true selves, creatures who more and more say, yes to God, thy will be done? Or are we becoming our false selves, people who are turning away from God, to whom God will finally say to us, thy will be done, as we consign ourselves to hell, to our own choices? If we have chosen to orient our lives toward God, and not around ourselves. We can be confident that through Christ, our ultimate destination will be in heaven with God. And as we live our lives here on this earth, 
we need to do all that we can do to deny our old selves and then discover and to nourish our true selves. And as we do that, we will discover, as the former governor of Tennessee, Ben Hooper, did, we'll discover who our true daddy is. And we can then go on to claim our full inheritance as sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do give you thanks for uh, coming into our lives and transforming us into your sons and daughters through Christ. What a wonderful, inexpressible gift we have received from you. And so, Lord, we want to live out our lives in gratitude to you. We want to live out our lives in ways that show to the world who we are and who you are as we faithfully follow after Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.